Well, I am really thankful I have never had to rescue either of my sons from any kind of serious, immediate danger. Never had to rescue them from drowning. Never had to rescue them from a burning building. Never had to pull them out from a car after an accident. But we did have a close call once with Jason. When we lived in Denver, for a short while, I subsidized some of my income doing a newspaper route in my car. Most mornings, Deborah would go with me, and it would take us about an hour and a half to go pick up the papers and fold them and bag them and deliver them to the homes on my route. While we did this, our children were home sleeping. One morning, when returning from the paper route, we pulled into our development I was about to turn onto our road when Deborah screamed, Stop the car! And I saw right away what had alarmed Deborah. It was our little son, Jason, about 18 months old, in his pajamas, standing on the side of the road that we were on, crying and disoriented. Deborah practically leaped out of the car gathered him up in her arms. We took him home and discovered that somehow our 18-month-old had unlocked and opened the front door, left our home, and was out looking for us. We stopped the paper route soon after this. Like any parents, we wondered what might have happened if we didn't come across him at that moment? Where could he have wandered off to? Who might have picked him up? What wild animal could he have encountered in the early morning? These were terrifying thoughts to think. It could have been much worse. A serial killer could have targeted our little boy. You may think, well, that's kind of extreme to bring up that example. But you know, that's exactly what happened in our text in Matthew chapter 2. But before we get to that, let's recap those 12 verses that we just read in this chapter. What an incredible day it was for young Joseph and Mary. The Magi, these Persian stargazers, These Gentile wise men showed up at their humble home and began worshiping their little toddler, Jesus. Astonishing. Can you imagine? And the gifts. Gifts fit only for a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Can you imagine? I mean, in our context, it's like the publisher's clearinghouse people rang the doorbell and handed you a check. Their poverty or whatever financial situation they were in was at that moment radically changed. And then hearing the Magi's story, tracking this supernatural star for a thousand miles, 
all the way from Persia. Can you imagine? Mary and Joseph didn't know the story like we do. They were hearing it for the first time. Crazy. Astonishing. After the Magi left, you can imagine Mary and Joseph maybe stepping outside into the night to kind of clear their heads a little. And if they were under the stars, I bet they wondered what that special star was or where it was. Was it perhaps that glory that went before Israel as a cloud by day and pillar fire by night? Was that what it was? In any event, it must have taken a long time for Mary and Joseph to calm down enough to sleep at the end of that day. Our account is not clear as to exactly when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph as he dreamed. Maybe that night. But it had to be almost immediate that the angel of the Lord appeared because apparently the wise men took instant flight from Palestine by another route, warned in their dreams by an angel, which you can read in verse 12. So I want to divide our text this morning into two simple parts. The first part, I want you to notice how a father rescues his son. A father rescues his son. Let's look at that starting in verse 13 again. Now when they had departed, that's the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. You know, King Herod, his homicidal rages were well known already by this point in history. He'd already murdered his wife and two of his sons by this time. Herod was so self-centered and bloodthirsty that he had given orders that when he died, a bunch of Jews were to be arrested and executed so that there would be lots of mourning in the country when he died. Because he was afraid they wouldn't mourn for him. Josephus, the historian, tells us that. In fact, if we look on to verses 16 and beyond, we discover Herod did indeed try to murder Christ. Um, Herod had all of the children uh, under two uh, murdered because of the timing of the Magi that they had given him. It had been two years since they first saw, saw the star appear. And so that's why he went after the two years and under. So that's why, if you've ever heard us say, that Jesus was probably around two or a toddler when the wise men came, contrary to a lot of nativity scenes, right, where the wise men kind of show up in Bethlehem when he's born. That's not what happened. He was older. They were in a home, not a cave anymore, not at a manger. And so this Jesus was probably a toddler, probably near two years old. Well, according to one historian, listen to this. 
The guy's name is Macrobius. He wrote that on hearing that the son of Herod, king of the Jews, had been slain. The son of Herod had been slain when Herod ordered that all boys in Syria under the age of two had to be killed. When he made that order, one of his own sons was under two. And he had him killed. Caesar Augustus wrote, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. when When I said a serial murderer targeting a boy, I wasn't kidding. This guy was crazy. He was psychotic. So you can imagine when the angel told Joseph that Herod was targeting his boy, he was up immediately on his feet ready for action, woke Mary, got the child, packed a few belongings, including gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which is going to help them fund this trip of hundreds of miles down to Egypt, whatever their needs might be. And they quietly exited Bethlehem in the middle of the night. It was about 75 miles to the edge of Judea, and then about 500 miles total down to Egypt, So they got to the border and then moved down through Beersheba all the way across the wilderness of Zin through the Sinai Peninsula. And then there they were on the Nile. Now Egypt was a very natural place to flee to. There was a well-ordered Roman province established there just outside of Herod's jurisdiction. There was also a large expatriate population of Jews. Some scholars say as many of, as a million Jews lived in Egypt at this time. It was a great place to get lost, far away from the dangers of Herod in Palestine. And how far they got down the Nile, the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe Jesus saw the pyramids along the Nile as a little boy. Certainly, he saw a lot of idols and idol worship everywhere. We don't know how long the money lasted or how they used it or if Joseph got a job. But we do know they sojourned down in Egypt for some time. Now, at the very least, what we see here in these verses is Joseph rescuing his son from Herod. A father rescues his son. But even more properly, we could say, couldn't we, that God the Father is rescuing God the Son. After all, it was the angel of the who? Angel of the Lord that warned Joseph, who tipped him off. It's a beautiful thing as we look at this passage to see God's sovereign care for the Messiah. And it's a beautiful thing, again, for the second time to see Joseph's immediate obedience and faith when God's word came to him, which provided that care and protection to little Jesus. Well, when you read the, the passage to this, this point, that, I mean, that's the story. Jesus is in danger They're warned. They get out of town. They're safe. They wait till Herod dies. 
But Matthew also lets us know that there is more going on here than simply the preservation of Jesus. Not only do we see a father rescuing his son, but notice secondly, let's see how a son rescues the world. A son rescues the world. You see this in verse 15. Look at the last part that we didn't read. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That fulfills the prophecy that he has to go down to Egypt and come back. There's a prophecy about Jesus doing this. And it's a quote. If you have a study Bible or some kind of cross-references, you'll notice that this is a quote from the Old Testament from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. This is what it says in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. All right, so how does this work? How does Jesus' journey down into Egypt and then back fulfill this Old Testament prophecy written 700 years or more before Jesus' birth? Well, the answer is at least in two ways. I want to give them to you. First, Jesus is seen as the new Israel. Jesus is seen as the new Israel. Now, the nation of Israel or we might call them corporate Israel, was sometimes called God's son in the Old Testament. In fact, here in Hosea 11, verses 1 and 2, that's what it's called. In Hosea 11, 1, you have this description of the nation of Israel as God's child and son. Let me read it again. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But verse 2 makes it very clear that this child, this son, is corporate Israel. Hosea 11.2 says, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So, the quotation, Out of Egypt I called my son, is really... Out of Egypt, I called my people. That's how the Israelites would have understood this reference. That's the essence of it in Hosea's prophecy. So how is Jesus the new Israel? I don't know how often we think about this, but Jesus made this very clear right at the beginning of his ministry. In fact, just a couple of chapters over in Matthew chapter 4, we have an account of Jesus' temptation by the devil. You remember that, right? It lasted 40 days, and it was in the wilderness. And that is an uh, uh, um, intentional parallel to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, being tempted. And, and remember, during those 40 days when Jesus was tempted, 
Every time the devil would tempt him, do you remember what Jesus did? He quoted back to him what? Scripture. And do you know where that scripture came from? It came from the book of Deuteronomy. And every one of those scriptures quoted by Jesus to counter the devil's temptations came from the early chapters in Deuteronomy, which was dealing with Israel's temptation in the wilderness. So the implication is where all of Israel was tempted and failed miserably. Jesus, the true Israel, will overcome. He's also the true Israel because he is the ultimate seed of Abraham. Notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let me read that for you. Paul writes this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That word offspring can also be translated seed. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Christ is the ultimate son of Abraham, the ultimate seed of Abraham, the true Israel. That's one implication of Matthew showing us Hosea 11.1 and that it applies now to Jesus, calling him out of Egypt. There's a second implication, and that's that Jesus is not only the new Israel, but Jesus is also the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is physically going down to Egypt and physically coming back. And he will deliver his people from the bondage of sin. Now, if you were just to think about that on, on its own and what you know of the Scripture, it would bring to mind a pretty important Old Testament story, wouldn't it? Because we know of someone else who went down into Egypt and delivered his people, delivered God's people, Moses. And all through the book of Hosea, this, where this quote comes from, that we're focusing on in Matthew, all through the book of Hosea, you have prophecies of a future new exodus. And all through the book of Hosea, you have the people of Israel being personified as an individual, either as a female who is referred to as an adulterous wife in Hosea, or as an individual male who is going to be struck down by a lion in Hosea's prophecy. The point seems to be that Israel, when Hosea is prophesying, now Hosea is prophesying to the northern tribes. You remember the ten northern tribes? They had no good kings. They were wicked. They would go into captivity to the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. They're destined for destruction because of their idolatry, their wickedness. Hosea, the point he's making is that the nation is going to be killed, so to speak, when they're driven into exile. And repeatedly, all across the book, 
as Hosea points to the future salvation, he points back to the exodus from Egypt over and over and over. So he keeps saying, in essence, this. Hosea's message is this. God is going to save you after the exile the way he saved you after your enslavement in Egypt. It was encouraging to these people who were about to go into exile. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 1 and 2, we noticed um, last week when Pastor Trey preached um, Matthew 1, 18 to 25, there was a prophecy in there. Do you remember? From Isaiah 7, 14, about a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. In the early part of chapter 2, when Herod is interacting with the wise men, there's another quote from the Old Testament that comes from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Now, here in verse 15, there's a quote from Hosea chapter 11. And just after this, in the account of Herod slaughtering all these little babies, there's another fulfillment of prophecy that goes back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah. All prophets who were writing to Israel and telling them that because of their sin, they're about to go into exile. But even though they're going to go into exile, someday they're going to be restored. Every one of those prophets had that same message that are quoted in Matthew's Gospel. That is not a coincidence. God is making the point. All these prophecies that were written to my people Israel, they're all going to receive their ultimate fulfillment in one person. And that person is Jesus Christ, this little toddler who's going down to Egypt right now. Jesus is the one who's going to bring his people from their spiritual exile into the promised land. And we know that Egypt is often used in prophecy to symbolize a place of sin, a place of rebellion, a place of destruction. Let's put all this together. At the beginning of Jesus' life, while he's just a child, his sojourn in Egypt and his coming back from Egypt identifies him as the one who will finally deliver his people from their bondage to sin. Think about the parallels. Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Just like Pharaoh was trying to have all the male children of Israel killed in an attempt to destroy Moses. And so it's almost as if the original Exodus 
and the new Exodus are being fused together in Matthew's presentation of what's happening in Jesus' early life. You remember the first Moses led this epic Exodus. And you remember it was after a series of ten plagues that fell on the land of Egypt. And you remember the tenth plague, don't you? It was the plague of the Passover when the angel of death came through the land and passed over the firstborn that were under the blood of the house of Israel. But the angel of death killed all the firstborn of Egypt, and that brought their deliverance. Jesus, as the ultimate Moses, offers himself as the ultimate Passover sacrifice to bring an exodus out of Egypt, out of sin, out of spiritual exile to deliver people from their sin. And there are more parallels, by the way, given in Matthew's Gospel. Many more. And in other parts of the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, the manna that fell from heaven, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Remember how they got their water? Moses hit the rock. Water came out. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4. More parallels to Jesus being the ultimate Moses. How about John chapter 3, verse 14? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Or how about on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is seen talking with Elijah and Moses and Peter and James and John are there watching and listening and hearing them talk about. And what are they talking about? Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of his departure. Now I'm sorry that you don't see this in the English, but the word departure in the original language of the New Testament is exodon. From the word exodus. Moses is speaking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about His exodus. His leading His people to deliverance. He came to set His people free. And that's exactly what Matthew told us back in chapter 1, right? She will bear a son, verse 21, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. 
in just a few minutes, the children are going to come to close out our service with a few songs. But before they come, a couple of thoughts in closing. What is Matthew trying to get across to his readers in the, these few little verses, 13, 14, and 15, in chapter 2? I think what Matthew is trying to get across to his readers is this. You are in exile. You may not be living outside the land, but you're under foreign power, under a foreign king. But even more importantly, there's a greater exile, isn't there? You've been without the revelation and presence of God for over 400 years. Friend, you may be in a similar situation this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're still lost in your sins, if you haven't received his forgiveness and eternal life, you're in a spiritual exile too. You're separated. You're apart from God. I love... um, songwriter Andrew Peterson's album, Behold the Lamb of God. It's great to listen to at Christmas time, by the way. Specifically, his song, Deliver Us. I'll just quote the first line here. He writes this. Our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud, nor brick, nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains. Yet, Lord, we're bound, imprisoned here. We dwell in our own land. And that's exactly what's going on in these early chapters of Matthew. They are still in exile because they're still under the captivity of their own sin. Maybe you are too. And if you are, the good news this morning is that Jesus, God's Son, can rescue you from your sin. The Son can rescue the world. And that's why Jesus came. And if you're here this morning and you've never bowed your knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledged that he came to save you. He, the Son of God, who died on a cross, who rose the third day from the grave, who has the power over sin and death, who can give you the forgiveness you need. Take your sins and put them as far away from you as the east is from the west, who can take your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh, who can give you eternal life, who can prepare a place in heaven for you who can give you purpose and joy and peace in your life. We'd love for you to find that this morning if you've never embraced Jesus as your Savior. Just after the service concludes in a few moments, won't you come and grab me, grab one of the pastors, grab a Christian near you, stop up here uh, to the left um, in the corner of the sanctuary and talk to a counselor Uh, and, and the cubicle here in our prayer room who can open the Bible and show you how to become a follower of Jesus, how to take those first steps of faith. It would be the greatest Christmas gift you ever received. 
Then just a word to Christians this morning as well. Messages like these, where the Bible shows such inner connection so clearly, I don't know about you, but it strengthens my faith. I hope it does yours as well. You may be struggling with your faith today. I don't know. You may be weighing Christianity in the balances of your mind. Deciding if you're going to go all in. You, You may be deciding if your parents' faith will become your own or not. If you're in that place this morning, let me just encourage you to take another look at God's word. All these connections and themes are not accidents. They're not the skillful manipulations of a preacher. They're right there in plain sight. Written by over 40 different authors over 1,600 years. There is no book like this book. This is God's word, and you can trust it. You can trust it with your life. God has always kept his promises, and he will to you too. And if you think the connection from Jesus to Moses, or as we've seen already in Matthew, from Jesus to David as the new king, is pretty cool. Let me show you. Even one more. Because it's worth pointing out that in these early chapters of Matthew, you have a man named Joseph who's the son of a man named Jacob. Go back to the genealogy in chapter 1. Look who his daddy is. A man named Joseph whose dad is named Jacob who has dreams and takes his family into Egypt in order to save their lives. Sound familiar? The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis is a type of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is set up everywhere in the Old Testament. This is his story. Jesus isn't just about the New Testament. Friends, the whole Bible is Jesus' story. All of the other lives through these hundreds and thousands of years have been directed to show you one life. His life. Jesus' life. So understand this. Christmas is about deliverance and about salvation to all who believe. And if you believe, if you are in Jesus, guess what? You too are true Israel. If you are in Jesus, you also are the spiritual seed of Abraham. And if you're in Jesus you too have been delivered from Egypt. 
from your sin, from your rebellion. And even though Moses couldn't get you all the way to the promised land, you know the story? His successor will. Do you remember Moses' successor's name? Joshua. The Hebrew, Yeshua. That's where we get the word for Jesus. And Jesus will get you to the promised land. Trust him. Trust him this morning. Let's pray. And then our children will come and close our service with some songs together. Oh, Father, your word is precious. It is powerful. It is not the work of human hands. It is your ways. It is your thoughts. It is your plan. It is your will. And even in the lives of Adam and Joseph and David and Moses and so many others, you're showing us all along the way who we're really to look for. The one who's the ultimate fulfillment of them all. The one who will lead the ultimate exodus out of Egypt, out of our sin, and into the promised land. Thank you for doing that for us. And Father, if we believe that, help us to take that good news, especially now at Christmas time, and go and tell everyone that Jesus is born. Help us, Lord, to do that and help this Christmas not to be full of commercialism and entertainment. Help to be full of worship and hearts full of joy and gratefulness because the little baby Jesus led a mighty exodus to save us from our sins and to take us to the promised land. And I pray this in his precious name. Amen.